Why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation, which you have purchased of old, which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your heritage. Remember Mount Zion, where you have dwelt. Direct your steps to the perpetual ruins. The enemy has destroyed everything in the sanctuary. Your foes have roared in the midst of your meeting place. They set up their own signs for signs. They were like those who swing axes in a forest of trees, and all its carved wood they broke down with hatchets and hammers. They set your sanctuary on fire. They profaned the dwelling place of your name, bringing it down to the ground. They said to themselves, we will utterly subdue them. They burned all the meeting places of God in the land. We do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet, and there is none among us who knows how long. How long, O oh God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the fold of your garment and destroy them. Yet God... My king is from old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. You split open springs and brooks. You dried up ever-flowing streams. Yours is the day, yours also the night. You have established the heavenly lights and the sun. You have fixed all the boundaries of the earth. You have made summer and winter. Remember this, O Lord, how the enemy scoffs. A foolish people reviles your name. Do not deliver the soul of your dove to the wild beasts. Do not forget the life of your poor forever. Have regard for the covenant, for the dark places of the land are full of the habitations of violence. Let not the downtrodden turn back in shame. Let the poor and needy praise your name. Arise, O God, defend your cause. Remember how the foolish scoff at you all the day. Do not forget the clamor of your foes, the uproar of those who rise against you, which goes up continually. This is the word of the Lord. Well, uh, thank you, Susie. That was... Well read, well read, very, you kind of feel that, can't you? So, when I was in sixth grade, I was sitting in my um, classroom at school with, it was a Friday, the, the other students were in there and the teacher had been called out of the room for some reason. So we were just sitting around as 12 year olds do, talking about what 12 year olds talk about. The teacher comes back into the room with this somber look on his face. This was unusual, he didn't look that way. The room got quiet and he announced, the president has been shot. It was November, 1963, and President Kennedy had been shot that day. And 
that was a Friday, and over the weekend, I watched as my nation lamented the loss of this leader. I also remember one morning I was getting ready for work. I walked into my living room and the TV set was on. And here was this image of a skyscraper with a big gash through it, smoke pouring out of it. A plane had flown into the World Trade Center tower and it was on fire. It was 9-11. And again, I watched over the next several weeks and months as my nation lamented this loss. You know, when Kennedy was shot, it was the 1960s, there were two more leaders that were assassinated in that same decade. The leaders that we lost were the object of our lament. That's what we lamented over, the loss of those leaders. When 9-11 happened, we lamented the loss of all those lives and the security that we felt as a nation. That was the object of our lament. Even this morning, I walk in here and Will comes up to me and said, did you hear about Charlottesville? No, I hadn't. I hadn't checked the news. A young woman has died. Many were injured by somebody driving a car into a crowd of people. We lament that death. We lament those injuries as a nation. We lament the hatred and the lies that you have to believe to actually perpetrate that kind of crime. It's wrong. Well, we see in Psalm 74 something very similar. This was a national tragedy for Israel that they're lamenting. Now, just a little background. The Lord had brought the nation of Israel out of Egypt into the Promised Land, uh, 1500 BC. That's a thousand years before what is what we read here in Psalm 74. And Israel was brought out of out of Egypt. They were given their own country. The intent was was they were to enjoy the land and they were to worship uh, and serve the God of the universe, Yahweh. We'll, um, we'll get into that a little bit more in depth because in this fall, we're actually going to be teaching through the book of Exodus. So we'll get into that more, uh, more then. But suffice to say, they came into the land in 957 BC. They built a temple in Jerusalem for the purpose of worshiping and serving Yahweh, the God of, uh, God of the universe. Now, this is the ancient world. Um, in the ancient world, many... Most cities had temples to various gods and deities. We still do today. We just don't call them that. But um, uh, some cities had a lot. Cities had lots of temples. Sometimes to a lot of different gods. And the purpose of the temple was you went into the temple, and this is where you learned about the deity that the temple represented. This is where you would um, usually see some sort of statue or carving or some other image of what they thought this God looked like. And it was where you did your business with this God. If you wanted to be blessed, if you wanted, if you wanted to do good in business or in farming or in marriage or in fertility, you went into this temple, you did some sort of sacrifice or you paid some money or you, or you did some act so that the God would serve you, hopefully. That was the purpose. Now the Jewish temple was different. 
It was a building like the others. But when you went inside, you didn't see an image of this God, Yahweh. What you saw instead um, were the people coming in to worship. You saw the ceremonies. You saw the people making sacrifices. You saw people um, you know, praying and atoning for their sins. If you wanted to know more about this God, you would learn about it by what you observed the congregation to do when they came in there. And some of these ceremonies involved the whole city of Jerusalem where they would all come up and, 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 and meet at the temple. The other thing is when you went into the temple, you could hear the Bible, the scriptures taught. That's how you learned about this God, but you couldn't see him. There was no image. In fact, no image of God was permitted in the temple and no image of any other God, by the way, was permitted. There was only one. That was to be true in the temple, that was to be true in Jerusalem, that was to be true in all of uh, Israel. The other thing that the temple in Jerusalem was for was it was a place for the nations to come and to pray to this God, to Yahweh. Now, it didn't work out quite that way after they built the temple, and there's a long and sordid history of Israel as a nation, as a people, um, worshiping other gods, worshiping idols, you know, being unfaithful to the God that had brought them into the land. And <clears throat> there were many warnings that God made to them. You see, you read that in the prophets of the Old Testament. There were, there were some revivals that happened. You know, that was good. But in general, um, by this time, they had thoroughly polluted their own temple because they polluted their own hearts. They were worshiping other gods. And the Lord had gotten to the point where he'd warned them and warned them and warned them. And finally, in 587 BC, the Lord brought the Babylonians into Israel. They destroyed the temple. They destroyed Jerusalem. They took captive a whole bunch of people and took them back to Egypt in slavery. So that is the setting for this psalm. This event, where the Babylonians came in, this was their 9-11. That's how big this thing was. And they were lamenting this together. And this is what we see when we read this song. Okay, so we look at the text. It's basically three sections. The first 11 verses ask the question, why have you rejected us forever? That's how they felt their God had, re had rejected them. He destroyed the temple where, God, why did you destroy the temple where we pray to you? I thought maybe that would be sacred. No, it wasn't. The enemies of God, the Babylonians, and even the enemies within the nation of Israel were all scoffing at what had happened. And the Babylonians in particular, they were eradicating Jewish worship, not only in Jerusalem, not only in the temple, but we see in other places, every place else where Yahweh, where the people would gather to worship Yahweh, the Babylonians were ending that. So they were eradicating systematically the worship of Yahweh in the land of Israel so that they could replace it with their gods, namely Nebuchadnezzar. And then the psalmist bemoans, where are the prophets? God, you're not even speaking to us. This is a deep lament. 
the prophets were always there speaking to Israel. Lots of times it was warning. Lots of times it was criticism. Lots of times it was, uh, you know, hard things to listen. But at least they had it. And at this moment, where are they? Nobody's here saying, how long is this going to be? This is, like I say, this was a national tragedy. And it made no sense to them. I mean, it's kind of like, <laughs> you know, when I misplace my phone and I go to look for it because I want my phone, I got to use it, I got to make a phone call or whatever. And when you hunt high and low and finally you find the thing, there's this temptation to just smash it because you're so frustrated. Well, if you do that, you're not going to be able to use it like you wanted to. This is kind of the sense. Why would God destroy his city, his temple that was meant to be where the nations of the world would come and see who Yahweh was, where the nation of Israel could come and worship their God. Why would you do that? It's like the old expression, cutting off your nose because you don't like your face. He moves on. Um, verse 12 through 17. You, have, you are a king from old. He recognizes that it is really God that has done this. It is really Yahweh that has permitted the Babylonians to come in and do this. Because he, he goes on and on about, you are the God that parted the sea. You're a master over the oceans. You're master and, and control the largest animals that we know of. Uh, you control the moon and the stars. You control the seasons. See, this is, this is the, one of the one of the key things to understanding lament is you need to lament to the one that controls. In this case, the psalmist is lamenting to the very one who permitted the Babylonians to come in and do all this damage. He wasn't lamenting to the Babylonians. That's, that would be assigning them a power that they really don't have. He's going directly to Yahweh and say, why have you rejected us? Why have you allowed this? That's, if you, <clears throat> well, however we, we lament, we have to get at some point to that place where we recognize that God is sovereign and he allowed whatever it is we're going through to happen. And then the third section, he says, please, please restore your people again, verse 18 to 23. Again, your enemies are scoffing, they're speaking lies in your silence. The temple has been snuffed out. Worship has been snuffed out. There is no balance to these lies and scoffs that are being presented by the enemy. It's like it's silence. It's like we're helpless. We are defenseless against these wild beasts. Again, referring to the, um, I think, referring to the Babylonians. And even the poor and the oppressed. You know, at least... In Israel, there was a voice in the temple and a voice in the scriptures and a voice in the prophets telling the people that you need to, you need to help the poor and the oppressed. That was not happening here. The Babylonians were actually making people poor and oppressing people in great big numbers. And then he says, God, you promised your covenant, your agreement, the agreement that we entered into when we came out of Egypt and were given this land. Don't you remember that? And what he's not saying here, which, you know, you read, you read 
you read some of the areas around this this time, Israel had violated this covenant so consistently, so faithfully violated the covenant that that really was the problem. But here he's saying, remember us. Remember us. We are your people. You see, the object of their lament was their loss of religious identity. I thought we were your people. I thought we were your Jews. I thought we were the ones who were to have this temple and have this city and, and worship to you. And it looks like we're not. That is what they were lamenting. Now, one thing to clear up here. In verse 1, there's a phrase, the smoke of your anger against your sheep of your pasture. Is the Lord angry? Yes, he is. But this is not the anger of rejection or abandonment. The Lord's anger in this instance was not because he was about to angrily stomp out of the room and never come back. It wasn't that kind of anger. This was the anger that leads to love and correction, love and obedience. You know, as a parent, there's sometimes you get angry with your kids. You just get so frustrated. But that inspires you to, to get in closer with your child and instruct them and help them and even discipline them if necessary. That's the kind of anger this is. There's also an irony here in this passage. And this is what I, this is what I believe is going on because they're lamenting the loss of a building, namely the temple, the loss of a city, a whole bunch of physical buildings, um, and the loss of all these places that you would go to worship, physical places that you would attend. It'd be like if we suddenly could no longer meet here. You know, we would say, well, we don't have a place to meet. Their idolatry leading up to this their idolatry in their hearts had already destroyed the temple of their own souls. They had already done that. This was just making it a lot more visible to them. And the reason I say that is you see a very similar event 600 years later when Jesus came to Jerusalem. He kind of I think he's just expanding upon this and making it a little bit more clear. If we look in Luke chapter 13, we see Jesus grieve just before he goes into Jerusalem. And just before, within a few generations or two, the temple gets destroyed again. And this is what he says. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. The Lord is grieved that it has come to him, or it has come to his people again, like it did 600 years ago. He's about to enter the temple as the king. So here's this temple, and it's there to worship Yahweh, and... Christ, as the king of the universe, is about to walk into that temple. This is what it was all about. And he knows this is going to fail. And he grieves over this. 
Jerusalem was outwardly acting religious. They had the temple. They maintained it. They, I'm assuming they read the scriptures. They definitely did this, some of the sacrifices. There's all this activity, all this religious activity going around. But when the king actually showed up, they rejected him. So it wasn't really a true, it wasn't really the, the, the true religion that was intended to happen at that building. And Jesus knew now the Romans were going to come in not too long from that, not that time, just maybe a generation or two later, the Romans would come to Jerusalem and they would again destroy the city and they would again destroy the temple, only this time they would do a more thorough job than the Babylonians did. And rather than just take, the Bab- just take, take captives back to Rome, they spread the Hebrews all throughout the empire. They dispersed them. They destroyed not only their religious worship, they destroyed their entire sense of community. And that was about to happen. Jesus knew it was coming, and this is what broke his heart. His lost people were the object of his lament. That's what he was lamenting over. Now, a couple things to see here. Jesus laments over the belief, or the unbelief in this case, of a, of a people, of a community, of a nation. Now, he does lament over individuals, other places in the scriptures, we see that. But in this instance, he's lamenting over the status of an entire nation, a people, in particular, an entire city, the city of Jerusalem. Now, he's lamenting over this, and some of those people were actually with him, namely the disciples. And there were a number of women with him, and there were others that were following Jesus at this time, and they're witnessing him lamenting over, effectively, them. It's, you know, it's, 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 we don't quite understand this, but... In the New Testament, we see that as a church, we are one body. And if one person suffers, they all suffer. This is 1 Corinthians 12, 26. I don't quite understand that, but there's a connectedness we have together as a body of believers. If one suffer, we all suffer. And so when, when, when Jesus is addressing all of Jerusalem, I think he's also addressing these 12 guys and the women and the others that were around him at the same time, because you're all together. Now, we don't, we don't get this, particularly in our highly individualistic culture, but the Bible teaches this. Let me explain it further. When, we, when I talk about corporate lament, when I talk about us lamenting together for something, you may need to lament with us over something that you don't feel personally. When one is sick, we are all affected. You also may be spiritually quite healthy, but if the church that you're a part of is suffering or it's dying out, you need to own that you're part of that church. I mean, we think here, you know, us at Taproot, we're fairly healthy. But how about the health of the other churches here in Buren that we are connected to? Do we lament the status of the church within Buren, regardless of whether we're healthy or not? We're part of a larger, we're part of the church in Buren. 
So that's, that's the aspect of corporate lament. Now the other thing we see here is when Jesus is doing this and he's surrounded by the disciples, they're observing God come in the flesh, lamenting. And if you were there in that instance and you could lament with him, you are entering into what Jesus lamented over. You're becoming more intimate with him. So these 12 and the, and, and the women and the others that were there in that, that party with Jesus, they were experiencing a side of God that, that was not being experienced at the same moment in the temple. In the temple, they weren't experiencing at that moment. They weren't experiencing intimacy with God. They were just coming in and doing their religious duty. But there outside of the temple, as Jesus is looking at all this and lamenting over it, he is allowing us, believers, to enter into his experience. That kind of emotional intimacy is, is rare. It's not easy to get to. But that is what he is doing there with his twelve. They were lamenting. They were learning to lament together for the state of their nation. <clears throat> Again, Jesus' lost people, the lost nation, that was the object of his lament. And the disciples and the others, they were allowed in. They were allowed to do that with him. So this brings up two more keys to the idea of lament. When the Lord laments, laments over a group, all are included, regardless of their individual, individual condition. The second thing is when we grieve what the Lord grieves over, we enter into his grief with him. We have emotional intimacy with our Lord when we do that. And when we do this corporately, we can experience this together when we're gathered. You know, it's sort of the same thing when we, when we, when we start our gathering. We have music and worship. If you're here, you get to experience that with everybody else. It's an experience you don't have if you happen to be late that morning. We share together during that time of worship. We're sharing together now as the scripture is taught, assuming I'm doing it accurately. Sometimes that's a big assumption. Now, this doesn't end here. Jesus laments again after he enters Jerusalem. He has this triumphal entry where he comes in and they, they, the, the crowd greets him as if he was the king. But it was just surface. Because listen to what he says in Luke 19 now. And when he drew near to the city, he wept over it. This is lament. This is the lament of God. Would you, even had you known the day... <clears throat> I'm sorry. He wept over it saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surrounding you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone on another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Do you feel the heart ache? This is something that God laments over. And of course, 
It wasn't too long after that, within that week, Jesus was, was rejected. He came in as their king. He was rejected. We don't want him. He was arrested, tortured, humiliated, and murdered. The thing here is, is that human suffering can be understand, understood through the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ, his death and resurrection was necessary because suffering is a result of our brokenness. It's our separation from our creator. That's the only way to understand it that I know of. In Jesus, we have somebody that can be with us in our lament because he has lamented all this. We see it in these examples. So this is all interesting. Happened a long time ago. But what does this mean for us today? Well, go back to the examples I gave. How did you feel when, if you were here alive... During, uh, these, how did you feel about those assassinations back in the 1960s? How did you feel when 9-11 happened? How did you feel when the financial crisis of 2008 happened? When it looked like a lot of us might not have a job? How did you feel yesterday when we found out about what happened in Charlottesville? Do we grieve for those things? Are we sad for those things? Think about just, not just America, where it is at, but think about the church in the United States, Christians in the United States. Are you sad or alarmed about the state of the church in this nation? See, we have seen a loss in the last uh, several generations, a loss of what is called the Judeo-Christian influence in our society. Just one example. Christians... Like you take myself, for example, that have a traditional biblical view of marriage. Okay? Today, people like me with that view, they're viewed both in the law and in culture as having the same status as a racist or an intolerant bigot. That's how the culture views my belief on Christian marriage. When I was growing up, the Bible was called the good book. Well, a lot of people called it that, but they didn't necessarily read it. But it was respected as having moral and artistic and historical and, all, and um, cultural relevance, even though a lot of people didn't follow it. That's not true today. Today, the Bible, in most circles, is considered to be outdated, misogynistic, anti-scientific, and even racist. We have seen a cultural shift in how what we consider to be God's word, the Bible, is treated. Now, don't get me wrong on this. Uh, you know, when I make reference to time when I was a kid, which was you know, 50 years ago. Um, culture was a lot different. I don't believe in passing laws. I don't believe that passing laws, for example, will change people's hearts. 
Now, I say that, but it apparently those who hold a different view on marriage seem to think that changing law does change culture, and that changes people's hearts. This is a case where, I don't know, it's, I, I just find that really interesting that, that le- morality is being legislated all the time. All laws are morally based. Laws about murder, stealing, you know, you can go on and on. They're all based on morals. Somebody is legislating morality. It's just not, <laughs> it's just not being, being done from a biblical worldview, from a biblical point of view. I also don't believe that in America in the 50s and the 60s that we had a numerical majority of believers in Jesus. Now, that's my view. I haven't done a scientific research on this, but um, I don't think most people growing up, even though they said they were Christians, had the kind of view of who Jesus was that we share at Taproot. Um, now... <clears throat> In the culture, in the culture that, I'm, that, that I grew up in, the principles of the Bible influenced many. You got a lot of people that said they were Christians, that would attend church, that would try to lead a moral life, that would look at Jesus as a hero, that would say, yeah, the Bible is true. Um, but their view of Christianity was, as long as I'm a good person, according to the Bible, then God will bless me and God will save me from hell. That was the view. They were not, in, in, in what we understand Christianity and, and Jesus, they were not really believers. They were just outwardly acting like Christians. That crowd is greatly diminished recently. Now, the Bible was also, you know, since it was respected, there was a common ground. I can recall when I first became a believer in college, um, I would talk to my fellow students about Jesus, and they'd been in Sunday school. They'd been in church. They may not believe what they heard, but we had common ground. We could talk about Jesus. We could talk about the things he did. We could talk about how, how no, it's not just intellectually agreeing that who he is uh, that saves you. It's not that uh, if you are a good person that saves you. No, it's your faith in him that saves you. That's different today. Many, many, many young people now don't have no knowledge of the Bible whatsoever except that it's some book you really don't want to get into. Think about, too, what we've seen over the last um, couple of decades and just the closing of churches. Here's a quote from the Pew Research Center. One in three of the 18-year-olds have put religion aside. That's if they ever picked it up in the first place. This is a major change in the culture of the United States. If that demographic trend continues, our churches will soon be empty. I don't know much about what happened yesterday in, in Charlottesville. I just, like I said, I just heard about this morning, read a little bit of it on the news. But um, that's another thing to grieve about, that that would happen here in this country, that people would, um, for whatever misguided or hatred beliefs that they have, would actually attempt to do people harm by driving their car into a crowd full of people. 
That's a terrible thing. I grieve that the culture has come to that point. What does this mean for us today? Well, I can take this even a little bit more closer to home. All right? If we want something to grieve about, a taproot. We decided a few weeks ago that we actually are going to send our lead pastor and his family out to start a new church. That's a loss. Now, you know, many of us see that and are excited about that because, yes, we get to see the gospel go forth by another church being birthed or planted, as we like to say. That is a great thing. But there's also many of us that think this is a hard thing. This is something to grieve over. You know, when I first heard Dan bring this up, my initial response, just uh, just be honest, was like, I'm working on this building. Am I going to be able to finish it? I had, to mo- I had to lament that. I had to turn to the Lord and I said, okay, Lord, are you in control? Well, okay, yes, that's what I believe. I don't, I don't always feel that, but yes, that's what I believe. And... God, what are you going to do? What is the future? What is my future? What is the future of Taproot? Mainly, what is my future through Taproot was what I was lamenting over. My altered future that I had envisioned was the object of my lament. Now, I've since been able to work through that, and I do believe God has great things for us. This, is, this will be difficult, but I have seen the Lord do this before. In this very church, where senior leaders had to uh, step down. And again, we're losing somebody that's very close to us, somebody that's very key to us as, as, a, as a community. Yet God has been, was faithful through then. I believe he'd be faithful again. Uh, word of caution, though, during this time, as we, as, we, as we go through this as a church, the enemy wants to get in and discourage and lie and destroy. Just be wary of that. Now, the point in these examples, we're not here at this moment to analyze and figure out uh, why exactly this happened, as if maybe we could have prevented it, or who's actually responsible so I can find somebody to blame. That's not the purpose of lament. The psalmist affirms that God, the Lord, is sovereign. In Psalm 74, he allowed Babylonian, the Babylonians to come in. The Bible says that very plainly. He also wants to be, well, he's allowed all of our circumstances that we as a, as a community face. He wants to be in, uh, it, with us in that lament. He wants to hear us say, Lord, Why? Now, I talked about how in, um, the, uh, uh, in, in, the, in, the, in the ancient times, uh, you know, the Jews were basically practicing religion, but their hearts were already, the temple of their hearts were already polluted against the Lord. We still see this today in America. One, one statistic I found is that 60% of Americans identify themselves as Christian. 60%. That's a numerical majority. 
It's my contention that most of those who self-identify as Christians believe that Jesus will save them and bless them if they are good. This is called salvation by works, is the theological term. And if they are good citizens and they believe in Jesus, they show up to church occasionally, maybe even weekly. Maybe they are even part of a, of a, of a midweek group. Uh, but in their hearts, uh, the thing that they look to for meaning, for value, for identity, it's not Jesus. When they want community, they don't look to the church. And by community, you know, Christian community means you're amongst a group of people who can look at your life and say, I don't think that's right. I don't think that's Christian. If you're in a community like that, then you're in a community, the type of community that, that we really should be in. That's the way, the way the church should be. Most of us are in a community, I shouldn't say most of us, but most people I observe that, 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 that believe they're Christians are in a community where people just talk like them. There's no confrontation. There's no life on life with someone saying, I think you're wrong. That's not happening. It's, this is the things we agree on. That is not true Christian community. That's superficial. And many find comfort in the Christian community, but feel no need to spread it to anybody else. You know, I've got my nice little Christian club. My friends, we're nice and comfortable. Um, talking about this to my neighbors that I live around, I'm not really comfortable doing that. Well, I can understand the discomfort. But what is the church for? It's not just for us. The scripture declares that God wants the knowledge of him to spread throughout all the earth. It's not if we just hang with the people that we're comfortable with. I also observe many people say they're Christians, but do they read the Bible? Do they even crack it open on a daily basis and look at it? Do they pray? And do they let others speak into their lives? Today, if we think about what should the object of our lament be today, should we be the object of our lament? Have we gotten to the point where our Christianity is something that we just do on Sunday? I mean, I have to check my own heart. I'm sitting out here in, in, you know, on a Sunday morning looking at my watch and saying, well, the sermon's going to be over pretty soon, and then i got some music to sing and hang out a bit, and then i got to go home and do what I really want to do on Sunday. Is that... Am I slipping into the same thing that, 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 um, that we should lament about? So, Ben, go ahead and come up now and get ready. That's the question I want to pose. Which should be the object of our lament today? We're going to get a little time to do that. You know, is anything I've, I've said, is that true about us as a community at Taproot? You know, when, when we think about something that we don't like, something that's, that we might think is, you know, an object of our lament, the question to ask is, are we sad? Well, I am sad over things that have happened in the culture. I am sad over what happened in Charlottesville, just as I was sad over 9-11. I am sad when I look at the where of the church is today. 
once you get to that point, the next question is, is the Lord sad about the same thing for the same reason? Because again, when I lament, I want to lament the things that God grieves over because that brings me intimacy with God himself. Does he grieve over us as a church? Does he grieve over Taproot? Anything at Taproot? Does he grieve over the church in Burien? I think he does. Do we grieve with him in that? So, um, uh, I'm going to um, uh, I'm going to bring Glenn up in a few minutes. He's going to he's going to talk over, uh, kind of lead us through a time of lament. But we're also going to be taking communion during this time. The band's going to be playing. You, be, you come over from come forward and grab uh, a piece of bread and dip it in the, either wine or grape juice. Uh, uh, the elements are up here. And again, communion is that time when we remember that the Lord Jesus was, was crucified on our behalf. And it's an excellent time to just examine your hearts. Ask, the Lord, is, is this me? Is there something that I need to lament, lament over? Is there something that we as a corporate, as a, as a tapper church, need to lament over? So you'll take the bread and the wine and dip it and go back to your seats and just hold on to it. We'll sing. Uh, Glenn will lead us through a little of some, some lament. We'll sing for a bit, and then I'll come up and have us uh, partake of the communion together. So, Glenn, if you would like to come up.